based on Psalm 131, which is the shortest psalm, but they say it's the hardest psalm to learn to live. And, uh, and so I'm not standing here saying I've got this down and I have got it right in my life. I'm saying this is a, a psalm that I'm asking God, as the saying is going around, that we, I'm asking God to put the sword through my heart in terms of this psalm and to make it real for me. So I hope that it encourages you tonight. And I really want to ask that as I I share with you, just allow the Holy Spirit to come and minister to you and to speak to you and show you things that he's wanting to put his finger on in your heart. So if you have a a Bible with you or you want to share with the person next to you, it's um, Psalm 131. And uh, I'm just going to start off by reading it. And it says... Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child with his mother, is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. I could imagine that when David wrote the psalm, maybe Solomon was a baby. So he was probably had his wife next to him with a screaming baby in the early hours of the morning. And if any of you have had any experience of a, of a baby... A baby just wants all its needs met when it wants them met, and you better meet them, otherwise you get screaming. And uh, I don't think there's any more terrifying emotion that comes up with me than when you have a newborn baby and you hear that, and you know it's going to become, and everything, and you just jumps up to go and calm that screaming baby, because not because you hate the baby, but it's just an innate thing that God puts in you that you've got to meet the need of that screaming baby and their their needs are met. And I think that when we are, when people are very young and they're little babies, their worlds are about them. Having their needs needs met are their most important concern. That's all that it is about. I want my milk, I want my nappy changed, and I want to be cuddled. And if you meet my needs, I'll be happy. And, uh, And I think David must have been going through something of that in his family when he wrote the psalm. He must have seen what happens. Now, when a child is weaned, that's when you take a baby off breast milk and they start to go onto solid foods. And they're not so desperate anymore for their mother's milk. Mother is all to them, and now they can have, daddy can feed them a bit as well. And there's this weaning process that starts to happen. And I think this is an amazing psalm because David's saying that he's learned a little bit of a secret. He's learned a secret in his life how to calm and quieten his soul. And he says the way that he's done that is he's become like a weaned child. Not a baby that's desperate for milk, but a child that's been weaned. Now you must ask, okay, David, what are you getting at? But I think what he had understood is that he had begun to wean himself off himself and an obsession with himself, an obsession with having his needs met and being consumed with himself. It wasn't all about him. 
he'd start to wean himself and he'd become and seen the result in his life was a calmness, a contentment and a quietness in his life. And you see, he says this, a very interesting thing. He, in verse 1, he lists three things. He says, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, and neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. In, those, in that verse, um, David lists three things that are the things that he has learned to overcome in his life. He's learned to wean himself off. And I want to have a look at those three things and see how for our own lives we can say, Lord, help me to wean myself off of these obsessions, off of these things, so that I can learn to walk in the contentment within myself. Does that sound good to you? So we're just going to have a a little bit of an exploration of those three points. And the first one I just want to look at is when he says, Lord, my heart is not haughty. Some of you might have some different translations. Some of them might say, my heart is not lifted up. Does some of you say that if you've got your Bibles? Or some might say, my heart is not proud. It can be different ways that, that that is put. But another way of saying this is that when your heart is proud or lifted up, it's basically to live without expressing our dependence on God as God. And I think that can become the greatest sin we can ever commit. We can actually say, God, I don't need you. I'm self-sufficient. My heart is lifted up. I I'm, I'm, can cope on my own. I don't need you. And that independence, that kind of denial that we need God, is sometimes the greatest sin. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. I want to quote three people, and I think they said some very interesting things. John Calvin said, God cannot bear with seeing his glory appropriated by the creature even to the smallest degree. God cannot bear with sharing his glory with the creature. And how much are we satiated with wanting glory? Charles Bridges said this, pride lifts up the heart against God and it contends for supremacy with him. Isn't that an amazing thought? That in our instinct, David knew in his heart that his instinctive nature was to contend with God for supremacy. And C.J. Mahaney says this very interesting thing. He says, it is not if pride exists in your life, but rather where. It's not if pride exists in your life, but rather where. And David had come to that place in his heart. He knew that there was pride, and he had learned to settle this thing. He had learned not to lift up his heart. So when I was reading through this, and I must say, this wasn't a very pleasant study and preparation. I kind of like putting it down and going back and took me about quite a few days because you can just read things and go, oh, that's very good, and write some notes. But you can't read it for long if it's going into your heart and you... So I have to ask questions of myself. And I asked this question of myself. I said, in the light of that heart that's lifted up, let's be honest, Helen. And I asked myself this question, what are the ways that I manage my life so that I can get the glory, the focus of attention, the affirmation and praise, and the pity? I'm going to ask that question again. Maybe you can just think of it in your own heart. 
What are the ways I manage my life so that I can get the glory, the focus of attention, the affirmation and praise, the pity? What ways do I lift up my heart and contend with God for supremacy? You see, I believe that pride is the root motivation of all other sin. It's the baseline from which other sin comes. Selfishness, discontent, covetousness, always wanting what someone else has got, lust, envy. And you know, why, why is it the base sin for all of those things? Because I believe we, we are it's when we are dissatisfied with where God has us in life. A basic dissatisfaction where God has us in life causes us to not be content, and we contend all the time for more for me. And I think that contending with God for supremacy is at the heart of fear and worry and anxiety and doubt and manipulation and anger. All of those things have their root in maybe I feel I need to be justified or I'm, I'm afraid of the future. I don't know if God can do this, so I'm going to rather be fearful and make a plan myself. And I think that the bottom line is all of these sins are evident that I'm not confident that God is able or willing to work all things together for our greater good. Isn't that true? That's what Romans 8 says. God is able to make all things work for our good. But a heart that's lifted up says, I'm not so sure about that, God. I think I can lean on myself more. I'm going to depend on me. Proverbs 16 verse 5 uses some very strong language. It says, everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. It's seriously strong. Everyone who's proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And I believe that such strong language is used because that is the strongest way to offend him, to lift up our hearts against him. And uh, this week I was, I was driving on the way to Our Lady's Coffee Morning, and as I was driving, I was just, I thought God give me this picture for my life, and I saw in my mind, I saw me dragging this heavy load, this big pile of things, and I was pulling it and pulling it and pulling it, and alongside me was Jesus, and he was saying, Helen, do you want me to take that? And I said, nope, I can do it. And I was pulling, and I was pulling, and I just was, and eventually in my picture, I came to the point, and I just threw it, and I said, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. And then I saw Jesus say, okay, do you want me to take it now? And I said, okay. And then he picked me up, and he took it and flung it over his shoulder, and off we went. This was what happened in my picture. And um, it was just something in my life that I've been dragging for so long. For years and years I've been dragging. And I think I came to a point I said, I can't. I can't do it anymore. And you know, sometimes that's what a, a heart that's lifted up is about. Saying, God, I can do this myself. I don't need you. And we can start to take control of our lives. Start to think that we are sufficient when we're not he is the all-sufficient one. And I don't want to offend my God by contending with him for supremacy. He can pick up that burden and sling it over his shoulder. 
but he's not going to take it from me. He wants me to come with a heart that's humble and come before him and say, God, won't you come and take all that I can't carry because I'm human and I'm weak and I'm frail. So that was something that David learned. He learned not to lift his heart up to contend with God, but he learned to be humble and say, God, I need you. And that was something he'd learned and weaned himself off that. The second thing he'd learned to wean himself off was, he says, eyes that are too haughty. And uh, if you look up the definition of haughty, which I know you all know, but it's interesting that it's, uh, it says, another word for it is inordinate ambition. In other words, excessive, unreasonable, inappropriate ambition in our eyes. Um, to be supercilious, which is to have an air of contempt about us. Do you know, um, uh, 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 it's just a little bit of a funny thing, but I, to get fit, I've decided to start ballet lessons. <laughs> it's not so funny, <laughs> because it's a good workout. I thought I'd be flitting around, but it's not at all that. It's quite painful. And... Um, but it's very interesting, I was reading on a webpage just about ballerinas, and because they, oh, by the way, this is an adult beginner's class, so our teacher was very kind to say, just in case any of you have any aspirations of becoming ballerinas, it's a little late, dears. <laughs> but um, ballerinas usually start when they're about four or five years old, and they learn to carry themselves in a certain way. And uh, one of these sort of occupational hazards, I suppose, of ballerinas is they have a, a certain poise which can make them look a little bit supercilious, a little bit looking down their nose because they've learned to have a very good posture. And uh, so they said that sometimes in, in, social, in social settings they feel like people snub them because they look like they're snubbing everyone else. But uh, it's just a little bit of a illustration that we to be supercilious your eyes being haughty is to kind of walk around like well who's this riffraff anyway and uh it's it's a way of looking down on everyone because you are superior in your own estimation of yourself it's quite a thought hey to think in your own estimation of yourself you're superior so you look down on everyone else and there's an interesting proverb in Proverbs 30, verses 11 to 13. I'll just pick up a couple of the parts of it. But it says, There is a generation that curses its father and mother, that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. How lofty are their eyes. Isn't that interesting? There is a generation who curses its father and mother, and, and they, are, they are pure in their own eyes, and how lofty are their eyes. Isn't it a, it's almost like a, a thing of being even condescending towards our parents. That that's what haughty eyes are. We can look down on those maybe who are our natural parents or those who God has put over us. Whatever, there can be a, a, a sense of, well, I am, I don't need you. And I think what's a very interesting thing when, um, when your parents get older and you begin to see their frailties, and you get stronger and wiser, there's this thing that starts to happen 
that you can begin to despise weakness instead of continuing to honor them. And I think that God asks us all the way through our lives that he puts people over us in different places in our lives, but he asks us never to look with condescension, even when we see their weaknesses and not expose them. And that's something of a lesson I've had to learn recently. But I want to say that pride is essentially competitiveness. Um, It's the desire to prove that I'm better than the other person. It doesn't take pleasure in simply doing something or being someone or having something, but in doing better, in being better and having more than anyone else. That's pride. And David had learned to wean himself off that. He'd learned to be content with who he was, with what he did, with the the giftings that God had given him, with the limitations, and with the expanse. He didn't want more than what he had. There was a contentment in him. And he didn't despise others because they had less or more, or there wasn't a jealousy or a a despising because people weren't what he expected them to be. But he had weaned himself off this ambition and this superciliousness. And the third thing that it says that David says he weans himself off is a concern for matters that ought not to concern us. That's quite an interesting thing. A concern for matters that ought not to concern us. And sometimes, um, you know, sometimes we can be busy bodies and go, what did so-and-so say? <clears throat> I want to be in on the picture. It can mean that, but I think there's something more that what D- uh, David is talking about. I think he's talking about a thing called presumption. And uh, presumption is basically an arrogant assumption of privileged status, privileged access, or privileged information. It's when you get into a place where you think, you know, I, I actually deserve to know that. I deserve to have access to that. It's a little bit about, like, like Jesus said, um, when you come to your friend's house, don't take the seat of honor. Rather, sit at the lower place and let your friend invite you to the seat of honor. It's that presumption that, you know, well, you know, I'm his best friend. I should take the best seat. It's that kind of privileged presumption. It's to go beyond what is right or proper because of an excess of self-confidence. You're so full of yourself that you go beyond what is right or proper. A couple of weeks ago, I went on a retreat, and one of the chaps on this retreat was an Anglican or Church of England minister, and he was, interestingly, he was reading a book by a professor at Oxford University who was in the history department, and he'd written this book on the life of Richard III, and uh, I think the writer's name was Jonathan Hughes, and he just said, he said it's a very fascinating book because basically Richard III was supposed to be one of the most devout kings. He had, they actually found one of his um, prayer devotional journals and all the prayers he had written and his notes and his devotional thoughts and he was very, a very, very religious man. But what we also know about Richard III is that he was a murderer that he murdered the two princes in the tower and some of the other atrocities that he committed were just horrendous. And the writer, Jonathan Hughes, is trying to compare how do you have a man with such a devotional life? It is actually a murderer. 
And it's interesting because he was a man that presumed that he could go beyond certain boundaries because he was king. In those days, they had a belief on, in the divine right of kings. I'm sure those of you who've studied history and literature, you know, that, that the king was right just below the angels and God, and then everyone else was down below in the hierarchy, um, and that you actually had special rights as a, as a king. And I think that um, there's an interesting, I want to have a look at an interesting example in the Bible who was kind of a biblical parallel to Richard III. But I want to just say it has been said that wishing to know too much, uh, it's many, sorry, many wishing to know too much have failed to know anything good at all. Or wishing to be too great have failed to be anything good at all. Sometimes we can be so aspirant for things that actually God's just calling us to what we are doing right here and now and to be fruitful and faithful with that. And sometimes we're so pie in the sky dreaming about what we should be doing and that concerning ourselves with things that are unrealistic that we land up not doing any good at all instead of just being who God has got us in for this season. And he says to, to um, Jeremiah, he says, is it too small a thing? just to be my servant. It's a too small a thing just to be my servant. It's this basic sense of this is not enough for me. I'm worth more. And God, David had weaned himself off that and he'd been on a long journey. But let's just go and look at Uzziah. He was an example, biblical example of Richard III. If you've got your Bibles, it's in 2 Chronicles 26. And I'm going to read some of the story, not the whole thing and paraphrase some of it, but if you'd like to follow along. Are you, are you okay? Are you following? Not too tired yet? <laughs> now, Uzziah was a very interesting king because very often in the chronicles and in the books of the kings, uh, the writers, the scribes who wrote those would often make a comment on those kings. They would say he was a good king because he followed the laws of God or he was an evil king. And we see that Uzziah was one of the kings that was commended for how he followed God. And he actually tells us in verse 3 that he was 16 years old when he became king. And he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And there it says in verse 4, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. And it said, he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Now he went out and made war against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath, the wall of Jabna, and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities around Ashdod and among the Philistines. And God helped him against the Philistines, against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal, and against the Menites. And then it just carries on saying all the amazing things that he did and building in the city. And uh, just jumping down to verse 14, it says, Then Uzziah prepared for them the entire army, shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and slings to cast stone. So he had this amazing army, it says back there, of 2,600 um, men um, of chief officers. 
And then in verse 15 it says, And he made devices in Jerusalem invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and large stones. So his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped till he became strong. And verse 18 is our little twist in the plot. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up. There's that phrase again. To his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the son of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah became furious, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out. Verse 21 says, And King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. And he dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. A man who was presumptuous, a man who overstepped his bounds as king and tried to perform the ritual and the rites of of the priests, and it displeased God. How is it possible that someone who did so many amazing things could come to a place where he had God's favor in his life. He was sowing amazingly to God's kingdom. He was honoring God that his heart slowly over time shifted till he placed himself in the position where it was inappropriate, where he he thought he could cross boundaries and that God's law no longer applied to him, that he began to despise what God said in his word and made it not apply to him. You know, I believe that that's called the test of success, and it comes to every single one of us. There are many, many tests that we have in our lives, tests of failure, tests of being hidden away where we are overlooked, tests of being misunderstood, all kinds of tests. But this test of success can be one of the most painful because it can show what is truly in our hearts. And I believe that God wants us to be able to have success and to handle it. You know, I believe God is going to take every one of us in different ways into a place where he's going to open doors and and give opportunities. And God is saying to us, will you keep your heart in a place that is broken before me? So when success comes, it will not be about you, that you will not become presumptuous, but you will fall on me and know that this is my doing. This is my gift to you. Because how many times didn't we read it said that God allowed him, God favored him, God honored him. And so when I was reading this, again, I had to do this kind of soul-searching thing, and I said, Lord, in what ways am I presumptuous? Or have I arrogantly assumed that things are a right as if things are my due, I have a right to that, or I have a right to be treated like that, or whatever it might be, how we we put it. 
when I was working through this, I, I, I thought of maybe putting this thing of pride, which David had learned to wean himself off. That's why he was content. That's what we're getting to. Pride makes me compare myself with others, but humility makes me compare myself with Christ. Pride makes me compare myself with others, but humility makes me compare myself with Christ. So I believe that when we have pride, it gives us blind spots. And what it makes us do is just hone in on the faults of others. We can just see, oh, Dom, why does Dom keep doing that? And we get irritated with Dom, not really Dom. I don't. But, and we just, see, we just see glaringly what Dom does wrong all the time. And we can never see what it is in our own hearts. And I know you pat your wife on the shoulder because I better pat my husband on the shoulder because that's what I do to him. And wow. sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's when those that we live closest with, we can see all their faults, but we cannot see the things in our own hearts. So David was able to say in verses 2 to 3, I have weaned and I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child is my soul within me. So proof of humility is this, that by the grace of God, David had weaned his soul from self-seeking. C.S. Lewis said this, the real test of knowing God and being in the presence of God is that you forget about yourself altogether and see yourself as a small, dirty object. It doesn't go with popular theology. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 3 to 4 says, this is uh, Paul speaking now, and I think Paul had also learned this lesson, maybe a different way that God taught it to him. He says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I'm judged by you. He was writing a letter because they were upset with him, and he says this. He says, it's a very small thing to me whether I'm judged by you or by any man's judgment. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but that doesn't mean I'm acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. See, I believe even Paul had learned the secret of contentment. He was not concerned or obsessed with what others thought of him. That's what pride is about. It's being concerned and obsessed with what others' impression of us is. And you know what pride is also? He was not even given to valuing his own opinion of himself. This is hard-hitting stuff, guys. I mean, I can just say this, but this is like, can you? Can you? I can't say that. I can't say that I'm not concerned about other people's opinion and that I don't value my own opinion of myself. I think I've got a lot of weaning to do in my heart. He didn't judge himself by saying, well, if I did well at something, then I feel good about myself. And if I messed up well, then I don't feel so great. How many of us let ourselves go up and down like that? Oh, I did well. Got that, that thing's working well. I'm, a, I'm not a bad person. We do that to ourselves. I believe that Paul refused to fall into the modern-day self-esteem trap, if I can call it that. Instead, his sense of himself came from what God said about him. He said, I don't care about any man's judgment of me. 
or estimation of me, that's a good word, or my own estimation of myself. He says, what I really care is how God esteems me. And he knew how God esteemed him. And if we go to Galatians 2, verse 20, let's quickly flip there. We'll see what he understood. Okay. Galatians, Ephesians. Galatians 2, verse 20 He says this, he's able to say this. He says, I, me, have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul understood that this righteousness that we've been speaking about each evening and each Sunday morning, that his Because Christ had given him righteousness, Christ's righteousness had been put onto him, and his sin had been put onto Christ, he, that's how God saw him. That's how God judged him as worthy. That's how God esteemed him. You know, it's always very interesting in every age how the philosophy out there in the world comes and subtly begins to creep into our thinking and our understanding in the church. And I believe that humanism teaches that there's something inside each of us that is good and praiseworthy and worth defending. How often do we try and defend ourselves because we think, I'm actually worth defending. There's something in me that's worthy. And uh, I believe that this philosophy has permeated the church, and I, I like to call it a modern pop psychology theology. That's my made-up modern pop psychology, because you get pop as in popular psychology that's down there. Now, I've kind of paraphrased it like this. It's deep down, there is something noble about us, and we should have self-esteem based on this and what we are good at. That comes into the church. Deep down, I'm actually not a bad person, and that's what really gives me worth. And what I'm good at is what really gives me worth. But David and Paul had a very different perspective. And the fruit of that was that they were calm and quiet within their souls. It was a contentment that was evidence that they had learnt a different lesson to what we so easily take on board. The Bible teaches us not to esteem ourselves, but rather Christ in us and the righteousness he imputes to us. See, David had weaned himself from trying to satisfy his ego his sense of self-worth. And what he realized is that what brought him true peace and contentment was self-forgetfulness, not self-absorption. I just want to throw this out there for a debate around the coffee table. Is self-esteem even a biblical concept? That will be a good debate. Is self-esteem a biblical concept? To esteem yourself? Okay, I don't know, maybe talk about it. And the essence of biblical humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but more of Christ than ourselves. Then we will be weaned from ourselves and our self-importance, and we'll also begin to think more highly of others. You know, in our modern-day idiom, we say another way for saying you are proud or arrogant is you say someone is full of themselves. Have you ever thought of it in that sense? You're full of yourself. Not, 
and instead of full of Christ, you are absorbed with yourself. Verse 3 says an amazing thing in the last part of the psalm. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And we find true relief from our pride and the discontent it brings when we begin to put our hope in God. We begin to give him the things that we are contending for him with. The things that we're trying to carry, he's saying, give that to me, I can do it. And we're saying, oh, I'm in control. I'm in charge. I can do this, God. And I also want the glory for it. So don't take it from me. (laughs) And God's saying, no, release it to me. And I'm going to give you such joy in in your life. He is sufficient. He forgives us. He loves us and he cherishes us. He has a destiny for us, for his glory. I just thought that song that we sang was absolutely amazing. It was almost like a paraphrase of, of what we were singing about. And we do, like Sam used that X factor, we, we, example, we do live in a fame-obsessed, celebrity-obsessed society. We all dream that maybe, what would I look like on X Factor, secretly, in front of our mirrors? Because <laughs> there's something in all of us that sometimes wishes, I wish I could be famous. I wish I could be on TV. Well, maybe, no, Ali, you don't, but maybe some do. But you know what? That fame, is, fame is not all it's made out to be. And I I just believe that God wants us to esteem him as the famous one. Give him the glory. And can we just just respond out of what I've shared this evening? And I know that it would be a personal thing for every one of you. Maybe God said some things to the person next to you and not to you. And if you think, gee, I really hope so-and-so listened to that because I've seen what his heart's really like. No, then you know that God is actually speaking to, to you especially if it's your, your husband or your wife. That's the ones we can tend to look at most closely. Let's just, let's just quieten ourselves and calm ourselves. Let's let the Holy Spirit just come and minister to us. Father, what an amazing thing that David could say that, that he was not proud. And he didn't say that from a place of pride, but from a place of brokenness. From a place of knowing his deficiencies, of knowing his weaknesses, of knowing his utter and total dependency on you. that he had learned to wean himself off himself, his own sense of importance, his own sense of being in control, his own need for constant affirmation, his ambition 
And so, Father, we want to come this evening. And maybe for each of us, it's almost a scratching of the surface. But, Lord, we want to thank you that, as Anne preached this morning, there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ. And, Lord, I pray that you'd settle hearts this evening. That wouldn't, people wouldn't leave with a sense of despair, but a sense of contentment, knowing that it's a simple thing of just yielding to you, just surrendering. So I'm just going to keep quiet, and it might seem like a long period of silence, but I'm just, just let you and me do business in our hearts with God. Lord, you said the antidote to being obsessed with myself is being adoring and worshipful of you. And Lord, we do want to speak your praise. We want to say, Jesus, you are amazing. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the things that we've sung tonight about the way that you've given of yourself so freely, so amazingly. And the one word said, that to make a rich like me, you, you gave yourself for a rich like me. And Father, we, we are amazed at your, at your faithfulness, even when we fail, even when we mess up, you don't discard us. Even when we are proud, you still love us. You still hold us so dear to your heart. What an amazing God we worship. You are so devoted to us, and Lord, we want to be devoted to you, and we esteem you. We esteem you above ourselves. We say that you alone are worthy of all glory. You alone are worthy of the honor. You alone are worthy of the praise for our lives. Be glorified, Jesus. Be lifted up in this place. Be lifted up in my heart, Lord. Thank you.
Isn't God so wonderful? Hey? I was just struck as Helen was speaking how contentment in Him is the the greatest shield that we can possibly have against uh, the worries and anxieties and the striving of the world around us. And we're never more content than when we are totally exposed before Him. And He takes us and He covers our nakedness and He transforms us into His likeness. Isn't that wonderful? I, I was remembering a story when it was really embarrassing. And even when I think of it now, I absolutely cringe. Where I was a master of ceremonies at a friend's wedding. And uh, they were quite well-to-do, and they had this big garden wedding, and there were about 200 people there. And the head table was, like, raised above everyone, so everyone looked up at the head table. And uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> so I wasn't trying to presume anything, but um, no one had told me where to sit, and I, I just kind of thought that a certain chair on the head table was mine. I'm doing all the organizing and directing people, and uh, I do my thing, and I sit down, and the next thing is a tap on the shoulder. And there's this little punk who's the brother. He's actually a good friend of mine, an amazing guy. I'm not going to give you his name, but he's grown up now. But he, right at that moment, he was a little punk. And he tapped on the shoulder. And as loud as he possibly could, he says, Oi, that's my chair. <laughs> and I had to stand up in front of 200 people feeling like I just wanted to find a pot plant to crawl into and die in. And, um, but, you know, thanks... The wonderful thing with God is that when we become nothing um, in terms of how we perceive ourselves on earth, in terms of what's important to the world, that it's the most liberating place. Now, Jesus, it says that he was God himself. Yet he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, becoming like a servant. And that's our calling as believers, to become servants, to serve one another in love. And... Uh, Jesus put a towel around his waist and washed his disciples' feet. And they were like, what are you doing? Why are you washing our feet? And he says, if you want to be part of my kingdom, if you want to be someone in my household in terms of seeing my kingdom come, then you need to put a towel around your waist and, and be a servant. The heavens upside down, the last will be first and the first will be last. If the higher you want to go, the, the lower you must go. And so Helen, just thank you so much for that wonderful word. Can we just... Give Helen a, a clap. It's, uh, it seems like the antithesis of what she's been talking about, but actually in God we can go beyond superficial things and just affirm and appreciate one another and what God has put into Helen. That's such been a gift to us. And just uh, Adrian, you guys, and Wayne on the, the AV, I thank so much the guys serving, the musicians. Really appreciate all that you've done tonight. We got some popcorn left over from last night, so we're going to crack out some fresh popcorn, some chocolates. So please feel free to hang around, linger, and let's uh, enjoy each other's company. But let's just close in prayer. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. Thank you that you have so much good for us in your son. Thank you, Lord God, that it may seem painful at the time, but Lord, you are taking us into such liberty and such freedom as you make us more and more like your son. I pray, Lord, for this week for opportunities for all my brothers and sisters here to be witnesses and to be the salt of the earth, to be your light in the darkness, Lord God. I pray give them opportunity to share your word, give them faith to be bold and courageous, and uh, we just trust you for good things this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Great.